you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, I really want to encourage you to open up one of those pew Bibles that are in a rack in front of you, Genesis 11, and follow along with us. While you're turning there, I want to put one more date on your radar. So next Sunday, Sunday school starts, there's the scene conference starting up, we've got members meeting the following Tuesday. So in two Sundays, that's the 19th, it is National Back to Church Sunday. I don't know who decrees these things or decides, but we're going to jump on that bus. The 19th National Back to Church Sunday. You've come to church today to be told to come to church. Good for you. But uh, here's what I I want you to do. Um, On that Sunday, we're going to start a new sermon series. It's our fall sermon series. We're going to do a doctrinal study on prayer. It's going to be a great Sunday to invite a friend to come. They'll jump in at at an important starting point with us. They'll feel like they're insiders from the beginning. And so I want you to think about who can you invite to come to church with you on the 19th. And then for so many others of our worshiping family, many of you perhaps who may be watching online, uh, it's time to come back to church. We want you to be back here with us. Uh, here's the way we think about our live stream and our, the recording of our service. We see it as a valuable tool for those who are sick or homebound or perhaps traveling away from us on a Sunday. We see it as a valuable tool for guests. It's the new front door to our church. Almost everyone who visits our church in person for the first time has watched a service online. Uh, But it is not a suitable long-term replacement for gathering with the body of believers together in person. And so we want you to be here Sunday, September 19th, Back to Church Sunday. It's going to be great. And I'm glad you're here today. This is going to be no B-team effort bringing our best today in Genesis chapter 11. So with your Bible open, I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning. What are some things in life that never change? The old adage is death and taxes. That's true. We can add to that list as well. Football season is always wonderful. Brazilian food, always amazing. The ocean is always mesmerizing. And movies at home are always better when you watch them with the captions on. I don't care what my kids say, it's the only way to watch a movie at home. If they would do that in theaters, it'd be my boomer dream come true. I would love it so much and so would you. Well, in our study of Genesis this morning in chapter 11, we're going to see a couple of constants. Two things that are always true. One of those pertains to humanity and the other pertains to God. And the thing that these two constants have in common is they both relate to God's created purpose for us. And I'll give you a little hint. Uh, The constant regarding humanity always pushes us away from God's created purpose. And the constant related to God is always calling us back to God's created purpose for us. If you were not living your life in God's direction, would you want to know? If you were not living for what you were created for, would you want someone to tell you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how difficult is it to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not living for my created purpose? Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus as long as Jesus goes this way. How devastating is that sort of life? How frustrating is it 
to live out of step with God's spoken will for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I can promise you this, you are not living in any way for God's created purpose for you. You cannot live for God's created purpose without Jesus Christ as the very center of your being. We don't just stumble into God's purpose. We don't just fall into it by accident. It is not a serendipitous endeavor. It is Christ at the center of our lives, guiding our every step, our every word, our every thought. So what if you could leave here today knowing your created purpose and living in line with what God wants for you? If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's going to start with a relationship with Christ. And you're going to hear that throughout our study this morning of Genesis 11. And if at the end of all of this, you want your life in line with your creator, you want your life in line with your savior, then I want to talk to you or one of our pastors, or a friend that you know that walks with Jesus, it'll be the most important conversation you have today or you have in the week ahead. We want to make it a top priority. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to guide you towards living for God's created purpose for you. In Genesis 11, we are after the flood. We read this long genealogy last week, and now we get to a place called the Valley of Shinar in a city called Babylon. Follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they've begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. What is this story not about? It is not anti-progress. It is not anti-city. It is not anti-tall buildings. It is not about a God who is petty or moody or insecure, or easily threatened by human ingenuity. This is a story about arrogant humans who willfully rebel against God's revealed will. When we read it, we see almost this cartoonish picture of people feverishly building a tower up into the heavens, uh, and then God confuses the languages and they can't talk, and there's, there's sort of a, a, a comic sense to it. But there's an argument to be made that this scene up to this point in the book of Genesis is the very pinnacle of human rebellion against God. It's different from all other scenes of sin in Genesis so far in that it is people gathered together, cooperating together in a unified rebellion against God who has spoken clearly what he wants and desires for his people. We see an act of rebellion, and we see God's response to that. And in both of these things, there are two constants 
that are put on display for us, two things that are always true. And the first constant is this, it's humankind's expanding sin. Humankind's ever-expanding and intensifying sin. From Adam and Eve's sin in chapter 3 and onward, we see the increasing horrors of sin throughout this story. Humankind has very few righteous moments from Genesis 3 to 11. We get a glimpse of righteous Enoch in chapter 5. Uh, we get a glimpse of righteous Noah in chapter 6. But so far in our study of Genesis, the consensus is that people are choosing sin and rebelling against God. God's estimation of humanity is verified over and over again. If you remember back to chapter 8, verse 21, here's what God said about humans. He said, the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. God loves his people, his creation, but his people don't love him. We have wicked hearts. And so what does this sort of expanding sin look like in the story we just read? There's three real quick evidences of expanding sin in this story. The first is the people are living outside God's will. They're living outside God's will. So there's an important detail in verse 2 that shows us the people living outside of God's will. In verse 2, we're given this little detail. It says, as people migrated eastward. As people migrated eastward. It's a simple little detail, easy to miss, but it's an important literary tool used by Moses because so far in the book of Genesis, when people move east, bad things are happening. In Genesis 3.24, Adam and Eve are expelled eastward out of Eden. In Genesis 4.16, Cain left from the presence of the Lord to live in a land east of Eden. And so here we are in chapter 11, after the flood, the population is growing, and what are people doing? They're moving eastward. It's a small detail that signifies that people are not living within God's will and God's blessing. Now, to be sure, they're not outside of God's will because that particular zip code is off limits. That's not the issue. It's not the real estate that's the issue. It's the posture of the heart. You could be wicked in Shinar or wicked in Jerusalem. doesn't matter. The human heart is the problem. And so here are these people living outside of God's will. What should they be doing? Well, Here's God's will for them at this point. God's will is that they would fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. That's the cultural mandate. That's what God has clearly spoken repeatedly in Genesis 1 through 11 that he wants his people to accomplish. He's spoken his will that he wants the earth filled with his glory. But instead of scattering and filling the earth with the glory of God, they are gathering in one tiny location in the valley of Shinar. There's a second evidence of expanding sin in the story, and it's that the people are replacing the voice of God. They're living outside of God's will, and they are replacing the voice of God with other voices. There's a phrase repeated three different times in the dialogue among the citizens of Babylon. And that phrase is, let us. In verse 3, they say, let us make bricks. In verse 4, let us build a city and a tower. Also in verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. So when the people confer among themselves, they don't ask, what does our creator want of us? 
but rather they listen to each other's voices. They invent a plan outside of God's will. They assign value to that plan and beckon everyone to follow them. Now, you as the reader of this story have to think to yourself at this moment, what are you doing? God has spoken. He has promised blessing if you will live in his way according to his will. And yet you ignore his voice and you listen to your collective ignorance. How could you do that? And you would be right to be alarmed at this point. Disaster is imminent when we replace the voice of God with our own voice or with the voice of a godless majority or the voice of culture or any other voice for that matter. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The industrious people of Babylon have replaced the voice of God with their own voices to their own detriment. So they're living outside of God's will. They've replaced the voice of God. Third and final evidence of expanding sin in the story is that the people are pursuing their own glory. And this is the death knell here in verse 4. Look at what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. They, they want the tower to reach heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. So what is their motivation for building the city and the tower? Well, their motivation is their own name. When they say they want to make a name for themselves, what they're saying is they want glory and fame to come to them because of their exploits. Now, there's an interesting wordplay in the original language in the Hebrew of this story that gets lost in our English translation. The Hebrew word for name, let's build a name for ourselves. The Hebrew word for name is Shem. Shem is also the name of Noah's son, through whom God has said he will bless the nations, bless the people. God has promised blessing through Shem, but the people of Babylon are saying, we don't want your Shem, we're going to build a Shem for ourselves. So rather than filling the earth with the glory of God, they're going to attempt, they're going to, attempt to fill the tiny valley of Shinar with their own feeble glory. God has promised them lifelong blessing if they will live for their created purpose. Instead, they reject God for one city with one dinky tower on one tiny piece of real estate. Their tower that's supposed to be so grand and amazing is in fact so small, God has to come down to see it. He doesn't look outside the window of the throne room and say, What is that? Where'd that come from? The story is written in such a way as to make us understand how feeble and puny the attempts of man to find their own glory is. It's an utter tragedy. Here's where you get to push back. Let's take a quick time out. The lights are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I don't know why. They'll be fixed. If the lights cycle off and then turn back on, that's just because they're being reset. In the meantime... We've now acknowledged them. We can put them in the rearview mirror, and we'll focus here on the text. Now. <laughs> All right. Jesus didn't have light bulbs. I mean, we'll be okay. We'll be all right. All right. 
at this point in the story, this is where you can push back and you can name some objections. All right? You might say, I don't see really what's so wrong here. The people are being industrious. They're unified. They're attempting great things. It seems that God might actually be the one with the problem in the story because he said in verse 6 that if he doesn't intervene, then nothing will be impossible for these people. God seems petty at the progress of his people. He seems threatened at the potential of his people. As if the people of Babylon have it in themselves to overthrow God. The only way you can believe that is if you have not read the creation account. God's creation is not overthrowing him. God's concern is not saving his throne. God's concern is saving his people from the incredible ability they have to invent sin and walk in wickedness. So these are good points. It's good pushback for us to clarify. The people are indeed being industrious. They're unified. These, these are not necessarily bad things. Building a city is not bad. Building a tall tower is not bad. The problem is not that they're unified in their construction project. The problem is that they're defying the revealed will of their creator and taking action for the sake of their name. That's the problem. They're doing some things that are right, not necessarily bad, but they're doing it for themselves in rejection of the God who created them. Writer and teacher Jen Wilkin summed up this point this way. She said, the right action done with the wrong motivation is the wrong action. The right action done with the wrong motivation is the wrong action. These are the very words of Jesus, in fact. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, two people can pray and only one prayer will be accepted, and it all depends on the heart of the person praying. The humble prayer in reliance on God is the prayer that's accepted. The prayer from arrogance for my own name is the prayer that's rejected. Two people can pray, one's accepted, one's rejected. Two people can give, one's accepted, one's rejected. Two people can fast, one's accepted, one's rejected. Why? Because the heart dictates the validity of our actions. They do the right thing with the wrong motivation, therefore it's the wrong thing every time. Here's the question, how many times have you argued for your own righteousness because you do good things even though your heart is far from God? But I meant well, but I'm not, I'm not as bad as this one. At least should I get credit for this thing, even though that's not exactly what you wanted? I mean, I, I felt like this was the thing to do. And in all of that, we ignore the heart, as if a wicked heart can produce good fruit. When we live according to our own will, following our own voice for our own glory, we are living in Babylon. How are we different from the people of this story? Well, well, if anything, our rebellion is worse. Our advances in technology and modernity have not made us more righteous. You see, we have more revelation from God than they did. We have Christ's incarnation, his death, his resurrection. And in the face of all of this, we continue to strive to live for our own truth in our own name. From the garden to the flood to Babylon to today, one thing is constant about humanity. We are ever expanding in our rebellion against God. 
That's what's constant about humankind. But do you know what's constant about God in this story? Our second constant is God's explosive grace. In every story up to this point in the book of Genesis, there is an explicit act of grace by God. So think about this in the story of Adam and Eve. God gave the grace of covering their nakedness with animal skins. That was explicit grace on display. Uh, For Cain, God gave the grace of protection from retribution. Remember that? He murdered his brother. He's worried that he's going to be killed himself. God says, I'll protect you. Here's explicit grace on display. For the generation of people before the flood, God gave the grace of preserving Noah and his family. So then the question is, where is God's grace in this story? Well, God's grace in the story is not explicitly stated. In fact, if we were just reading this and we get to verse 9, we might think to ourselves, there's judgment. God stops their kingdom building, which is anti-kingdom building against God. Uh, He scatters them. He, He confuses their languages, so there's judgment. But where's the grace? Where's God acting for the good of people in spite of their sin? Well, that's the right question. And for us to see the grace in this story, we have to go beyond chapter 11. There's two examples of grace that come from this story, find their seeds in this story. The first example of grace is seen in God's fulfillment of his plan. God fulfills his plan in spite of human sin. What does God want? What does he decree? He wants people scattered over the earth, not as a form of punishment, but so that the earth would be filled with his glory. And the people of Babylon state in verse 4 that they don't want to be scattered. And what ends up happening at the end of verse 9, we're told the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Here's what God wants. The people refuse. God gets what God wants in the end. And here's the question. Do we have a detailed description of the scattering of the people? We do. But it's in the rearview mirror back in chapter 10. The passage we studied last week, the table of nations, this long genealogy that's more like a map than a family tree, comes after the Tower of Babylon. They're out of chronological order. Chapter 11, the people are united in one language. God stops it all, scatters them, diversifies the languages. Chapter 10 gives us a map of where everyone lands according to their nation and their language. So the sin of man does not thwart the will of God. Not by any stretch of the imagination. God accomplishes what God wants to accomplish. That is God's grace on display. It's a grace that goes beyond just the zip code of Babylon to all nations and all people around the earth. That's the first example of God's grace from chapter 11. The second example of grace is this. It is our redemption completed. And that requires us to go far beyond chapter 11. We keep an anchor in Genesis 11, but from there we see God's grace moving in an intense way towards the redemption of his people and fixing all things right. 
So God's grace begins in chapter 10, like we just said. God scatters the nations in the wake of Babylon. The nations are scattered. What happens when the nations are scattered? Sin intensifies. People do what's right in their own eyes. Sin is filling the earth in every place where people live. And so then God acts in a decisive, central way to set it all right. God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for the sins of the people. A world filled with sinners. Jesus Christ comes and dies because he loves them. And three days later, he's risen from the dead and salvation is finished and accomplished. Having finished the work of salvation, then Jesus tells his followers in Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples of who? All nations. Go make disciples. The world is full of people who are filling it with sin. Go make disciples of all the nations that I've scattered and placed around the earth. Fast forward then to Acts chapter 2. And the followers of Jesus are gathered in Jerusalem during a major holy day. And God the Holy Spirit came down and empowered the followers of Jesus to speak the gospel. I want you to look at how it's described in Acts chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. The people say this. They say, how is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Not only does God's explosive grace work salvation for those who believe, but it continues to expand from Calvary to Jerusalem to the very end of time. He is moving all things towards the ultimate destruction of sin and the serpent and the everlasting peace of his people. And we see this on display in Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18 uses metaphorical language to describe a great worldwide wicked city at the end of time. And the name of that city in Revelation 18 is Babylon the Great. Now I want you to listen to how the city is described and see if you don't find some touch points to Genesis 11. In Revelation 18, 1 through 8, I'll read a few excerpts. It says this. John says, after this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. Then I heard another voice from heaven, come out of her my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes as much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways. Give her that much torment and grief. You can't read Revelation 18 without remembering Genesis 11. And what happens at the end of all things when Babylon the Great, that wicked city, is fallen and destroyed? What happens next? Well, another city takes its place. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. In Genesis 11 the story of the city and the tower of Babylon, we have a seed of the destruction of sin to come and the ultimate salvation God holds for his people. The valley of Shinar is the epicenter of God's explosive grace by which the serpent is finally crushed and the lamb is eternally glorified. It's unbelievable. The themes and the stories that flow out of Genesis chapter 11. From Genesis 11, we've learned two valuable constants this morning. The first constant is mankind's expanding sin. The second is God's explosive grace. So the question we would ask is, what does this story require of us? Well, if Babylon's sin was arrogant rebellion against God for their own glory then this story calls us to walk humbly with God and to live in his will for his glory. That's the correction. Now, with what we know of Babylon past and Babylon future and that eternal city to come, don't you want to live for your created purpose? Don't you want to live to fill the earth with the glory of God? As much as it is in you with your words and your actions to have your heart and love for Christ aligned with your actions in this very brief lifetime, don't you want to glorify the Lord with your life? You may not want to do that. It might be too costly. It might require too much of you. You see, in order to live for that eternal city, you're going to have to move out of Babylon wholesale. You have to repent of your pride. You'll have to prioritize God's will for your life. And that has implications on your single life, on your married life, on your young life, on your old life, on your spending life, on every aspect of your being. God claims authority and priority. Citizenship in God's kingdom is all-consuming. And you can find broad support for remaining in a Babylon mindset, if you wish. If you ask the world around you, they'll say, let us live our truth. Let us not take this whole religion thing too serious. Let us be good people who try our best, and surely God will do us well in the end. What a tragedy of a life when God has spoken so clearly and promised so much blessing and glory for those who would walk with him. What should we do instead? First of all, you have to hear the voice of God. Can I say this every Sunday that we gather together, that we must hear the voice of God by reading this word, by hearing this word, or by having other Christ-following people in your life who have permission to speak for your holiness. And they might say something like this, let us repent of our sin. Let us confess our sin to God. 
Let us worship Him together. Let us glorify His name in every aspect of our being. Let us speak the gospel to the people we live around that they might be rescued from an eternal hell by putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Let us not be afraid of whatever pushback might come. Let us move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. You've got to hear the voice of God in your life. When you hear the voice of God, second thing we have to do, we have to take prayerful inventory of our lives. So in the way I live, I speak, I act, is my, is my heart consistent with my actions for the name of Christ? Am I living in God's will for me? And that will is not mysterious and hard to find. When you hear his voice, you will hear his will for you to live in holiness, to come out of Babylon, so to speak. To speak the gospel, to make him known, to live a Christ-like life in a land of darkness. His will is not mysterious. And so we have to take prayerful inventory of our lives. Maybe this week you set a date on your calendar. You don't double book. That time is sacred. And you sit down in quiet with the word open and your heart turned to God in prayer. Lord, evaluate me. Show me my sin. Where am I living in Babylon rather than in your kingdom? Move me out of here and into what you have for me. Having heard the voice of God, having identified our errors, then what we do is we step into living in such a way to glorify God. Our confession and repentance is one thing, but what follows should be a life on fire by God the Holy Spirit to make Christ known and to fill the earth with God's glory. What will that look like for you? How will God use your unique passions and your gifts and the ways he's hardwired you and the audiences you have and the relationships you have and the platforms you have? How will God use you in your spheres of influence to fill those places with his glory? What a joy to step into your created purpose. And so having left behind our feeble personal kingdoms for God's eternal kingdom, we lose nothing, and we gain everything. And when we live this way, it's, it's going to change the way we worship so that we will begin to pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the light of your word today to speak into our hearts. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that we would not be enticed by residents in Babylon. We would not live for our tiny kingdoms and our little glories. We are so bent that way. Even knowing salvation, knowing forgiveness, knowing the cross, knowing the empty tomb, still our hearts are bent towards evil. So, Lord God, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, press with conviction into our lives so that we would live in your will and for your glory. And I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Jesus, would you open their eyes to faith today? That they would put their trust and hope in the one who was crucified for their sin, who rose again, 
who loves them and promises that salvation is theirs when they trust in you. And Lord God, let this church, South Shore Baptist Church, be a lighthouse with the gospel on the South Shore and beyond. To follow in a heritage of faithful men and women who have walked with you and to continue to make your name known to the people around us that the South Shore would be filled with your glory that we would live for your created purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.